Ladies and gentlemen, our last session today, before we conclude uh, with a wrap-up session after this one, is titled Going Forward, Accelerating Progress on Sustainable Development and the Millennium Development Goals. And the, the, the key uh, word here, I think, is accelerating. Um, it is my pleasure to welcome the chair of this session, a very good friend of the Lowy Institute, Ms Wendy McCarthy AO, who is the chair of the Pacific Friends of the Global Fund to fight HIV-AIDS, uh, tuberculosis and malaria. For four decades, Wendy has been a teacher, educator and change agent in Australian public life. In 1989, Wendy was appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia for outstanding contributions to community affairs, women's affairs and bicentennial celebrations. Wendy, I'll, uh, I'll leave this session in your hands. Well, thank you, Michael, and uh, it's very good to be here. I would like to begin my session in a very traditional Australian way by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and paying my respects to them. And if you haven't heard who they are in this territory, they're the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and uh, a very significant people they were and are. This session has got my least two favourite words as its title going forward. How could you do it, Michael? But as he said, the key word is really about accelerating progress on sustainable development and the Millennium Development Goals. A couple of weeks ago, I went as an observer to um, the Global Fund meeting in Geneva. And as the chair of the Pacific Friends, and we're the newest um, group of friends on the block, I was invited to observe the meeting. And it was a fascinating meeting, and I'm not unaccustomed to global meetings, having been on the International Board of um, Plan International for the last 10 years. And I do understand those sort of national play and power games. And I was very impressed with this meeting, but one of the things that I found most compelling was the discussion, very robust discussion, led by women about whether the Global Fund should move into the area of maternal mortality and deal with those goals five and six. And I was thinking about that this morning when I was thinking ab about this session. And listening in the earlier session, the, the lunchtime session, and a uh, bit like Bob McMullen, I've just arrived in from Melbourne, although Sydney is my home, and I was interested to hear the people say again, I think it was one of the women speakers again, who talked about the need, that the, the grounding is always about education, that education is pivotal and, and uh, that particularly for women and for girls and for women's leadership. And sitting in the other session, it was clear that we still have a long way to go in this grouping to find leadership of women. And frankly, until we have a lot more of the leadership of women, and that means education, and ensuring that girls get the education, manage to stay in primary schools, and in some of our neighbouring countries in the Pacific, that is a very big issue. We will not be producing outstanding women leaders to help us achieve progress in sustainable development and to achieve some of our Millennium Goals. We also, in the previous session, talked about partnership, and I was interested to hear Geoffrey Sachs say in New York 
last year that he thought the Global Fund was the best piece of development architecture that had been created in the last two centuries. I uh, wasn't aware of much that had happened in the two centuries before that other than being colonised, so uh, I let that go. But I've thought about it a lot, and I think it is that sense of mutual accountability that makes it an extremely attractive model, plus the sense, the constant sense that everything will be measured, that the metric is to be there, and if people don't perform, as has happened in our region, there will be a lot of discussions and the next amount of money will not flow. It's also a very inclusive way to see the world, and I frankly believe that in terms of development, inclusiveness is, of course, about gender, which is my, one of my passions, but it is also about children being in the centre and the lens of development very carefully looking at how we hear children's voices. And in this region in particular, we have millions of children living in poverty. And that means that we have all sorts of poor social networks and in which they have to operate and their chances of achieving their potential is very low. Today's session, we have a very interesting group of speakers. And I'm delighted that uh, our first speaker is going to talk about, um, I think he's going to talk about uh, something with microfinance. Um, another thing that I've had some experience in, I'm very interested to hear what he's got to say. This is Mr Vijay Marjan, who's the founder and chairman of BASICS. The BASIC group promotes livelihoods for over 1.5 million poor households. It was established in 1996. It offers microcredit, microinsurance, savings, agricultural, livestock and non-farm enterprise development services and institutional development services. His title today, his presentation today is Enhancing Access to Financial Services in Developing Countries of the Asia-Pacific and this clearly has to be one of the pillars of accelerated development in achieving our goals. Mr Martian, over to you. Please welcome him. Thank you very much, Madam Chairman. Uh, we just emerged from a public debate where 81% of us who were present voted that aid will still remain a critical input for uh, achievement of the MDGs and overall development, even in 2015. Uh, so therefore, uh, there seems to be no escape either now or in 2015 from doing it more effectively, and perhaps in a, diff in a morphed sort of way, perhaps not as morphed as, as we saw in the morning presentation, uh, where it, it, uh, the one about OSAID becoming uh, uh, impact leader. Uh, but, but nevertheless, we do need to find ways in the interim to accelerate progress. And, Capital in that is central. However, till fairly recently, and microfinance is about 20 years old, really, uh, in any significant sense, uh, flow of capital almost always meant uh, a macroeconomic flow. You know, you totaled up uh, using fairly rudimentary economic growth models 
what was the domestic savings rate and what was the desired growth rate and the balance was supposed to be made up through international assistance. And the assumption was that if the nation state grows, the GDP grows, uh, everything else would be fine through trickle down. Till it, it was found that that doesn't work and therefore if simultaneously with the macro economy one had to address the microeconomy of households, uh, of uh, the microeconomy of farmers, small and marginal farmers, the microeconomy of craftsmen and artisans, the microeconomy of urban street vendors. Then we had to find a way to get capital to flow to them. And the name for that capital, uh, as given by several early pioneers in this, was microcredit. Uh, it's only after nearly 10 or 15 years of that that it was realized that microcredit by itself is a fairly limiting uh, and limited uh, uh, sort of additionality. And really speaking, what poor households need is enhanced access to the whole range of financial services. And uh, in that, savings and insurance are critically important. Uh, because uh, there are lots and lo lots of shocks uh, and risks in the lives and livelihoods of poor people, and savings as a way of absorbing some of those shocks, and insurance as a way of mitigating the financial impact of some of those risks. So, micro savings and micro insurance got added, and then, uh, as it was again found that a large number of poor people had at least one or more uh, member of the family uh, going out of the village to the big city, the capital city, or sometimes outside the country's boundaries to work and had to send money back. So remittances and domestic uh, money transfers became an important service as well. And then as government started making transfers of cash to households, then government payments have increasingly become yet another important financial service. So today's microfinance, microfinance 2010, is actually at least savings, credit, insurance, and remittances and payments, if you want to separate the two, just to be, uh, just to be technically correct. Um, <clears throat> and perhaps in some countries where the dependency ratios are increasing and the demographics are changing, although most developing countries, the median age, is around 20 to 25, but there are some countries where the aged are becoming a significant proportion of the population, even micro-pensions uh, is going to be an important microfinance service. And even if it is not, as the median age is still very, very uh, young, uh, this is indeed the best time uh, for developing countries to install lifelong and universal health insurance program. In fact, Dr. Sen and I have recently co-authored a paper which will be coming out in the Lancet next month where we've argued that lifetime and universal health insurance is necessary. And for, given the demographics, current demographics of developing countries, this is the best time to install those just as we should install pension systems because for a long, long time, the drawdown on the system will be significantly lower until the, by that time the capital base can be built. But 
there is something still missing with this whole even enhanced paradigm of microfinance going beyond, well beyond microcredit. And a number of studies, including the ones by the, the Poverty Action Lab at MIT, which was cited this morning by Professor Singer, uh, show that the overall impact of microcredit or microfinance has been rather disappointing. Even in countries such as Bangladesh, where it has been pervasive and fairly long duration, uh, the effect has been uh, limited, although the counterfactual question uh, can't really be asked that, you know, what would have happened if there was indeed no microcredit. But nevertheless, the specific impact, and as measured by rigorous techniques like randomized controlled trials, which incidentally have their own limitations, and I wouldn't use this podium for that debate, but it is worth debating. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but to the extent there are reliable impact assessments, it shows that the impact of all of this is considerably limited on precisely those things which constitute the MDGs. Impact on health, impact on education, and eventually on poverty elevation. So what is missing? Uh, for those of us who came into microfinance essentially as a promising tool for poverty elevation and rural development, this is uh, an important uh, sobering uh, question. And within my own organization in basics, we encountered this reality actually far back in 2002 when we did our own first impact assessment after seven years of work. And we found that only about 52% of our customers who had been borrowing for five years or more and successfully repaying, only 52% of them had any significant enhancement in income compared to a control group. Another of the remaining 48%, 25% had basically no change, or very minor, statistically insignificant. And 23% actually reported a decline in incomes. And by the time that data came out, the agency which was, which was doing the study had gone away. And uh, while we raved and ranted against their methodology and all of that, eventually we collected our uh, <clears throat> uh, data sets and went and visited a smaller sample of, uh, of the households which had reported a decline in income. And very briefly, we found three sets of reasons uh, due to which they were uh, facing that situation. One was that their lives were full of completely unmanaged risk. People were dying, breadwinners were dying, livestock was dying, crops were drying up or getting flooded out. Uh, there were thefts and fires in the little shops that they had, all kinds of incidents. The kind of incidents which if they happened to any of us would be distressing but will not make a significant dent on our personal net worth. But for a poor household, they used to wipe out usually the total uh, household net worth. And therefore, installing a whole suite of microinsurance products became our first 
uh, ameliorative for that, that finding. And I'm happy to say that since the time we, we pledged to do that from 2003 onwards, we now have 2.5 million insurance policies extant uh, with 1.5 million of our customers. Some of them have multiple policies for different things. And this covers life, health, livestock, crop, and non-farm enterprise assets. <clears throat> uh, and I've now actually come to believe that offering microcredit without offering microinsurance is indeed uh, probably irresponsible because the intrinsic risks in several of the activities that the poor undertake are far higher than the 1 or 2% default rate that most microfinance institutions are willing to accept. And if so, then basically we're making the poor pay or repay loans out of cash flows from other activities and, in a, in a sense, leaving them with the burden of the microcredit. But the second important reason that we found as to why 23% of our customers had showed a decline was that whatever they were doing, whether they were small farmers, whether they were livestock rearers, artisans, craftsmen, whatever they were doing, basically they were, it was very low productivity. And since the market eventually rewards you for your productivity, so there was no way to enhance their income except to enhance their productivity. And that may mean uh, new agricultural techniques, new improved seeds, new agronomic practices, in case of livestock veterinary care, uh, livestock development, in case of uh, non-farm products, new, uh, new equipment, new technology, and so on. Uh, a whole plethora of things have to be done to enhance productivity. It sounds like a simple phrase, but when you sit down and parse it for the 85 activities for which we give loans, it is a lot of different things that need to be done. And finally, the third thing that we found was that if after all the risk and the low productivity, they still managed to produce something and took took it to the market, they got the worst possible terms of trade. Uh, they had to sell for cash. People knew they were desperate. They had small lots. Transaction costs were high. And therefore, both on the inputs markets as well as on the output markets, small producers were at a great disadvantage. And so for the second and the third, what we've done is installed uh, special sets of services. The first one we call agricultural, livestock, and enterprise development services, which are fee-based. There we have half a million customers paying us small fees, about a dollar a month, uh, for receiving uh, training, technical assistance, and, and so on, and market linkages. But the third and the most important thing that we've done is to bring them together and organize them into formal, informal or formal groups uh, so that they can deal with input markets, output markets, common facilities, and with each other uh, through economies of scale. So institutional development is what we call this third activity. So to summarize, if we have to enhance uh, the progress towards sustainable development and MDGs, whatever is being done in the aid world, we subscribe to it, and it, I think all that needs to be done. But a lot more needs to be done at the level of the microeconomy of the recipient households. 
and that requires an enormous amount of institution capacity building, and some of the aid needs to go for that, and not just for the throughput. Thank you very much. Thank you. I found that really interesting, especially a little bit about uh, unmanaged risk. And I'm immediately going to put you in touch with someone who wants to open a big insurance business um, with my, the microeconomy whom I had dinner with last night. So don't leave before I get you to talk about it. Um, and I hope that you'll be able to do something, work, maybe work something together. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Mark Sussman, who's the acting president of Global Development and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I must say I'm very appreciative of the support that um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gives to the friends of the, the Global Fund, the Pacific Friends, and uh, it has been a wonderful opportunity for us to work with my colleague Bill Botel in the Pacific um, and for to have the relationship with Lowy Institute. So I would really like to publicly acknowledge that, publicly acknowledge that, and say how gratifying it's been to have that energy. Um, being able to be put into this area, which is, as those of you who've come from the other parts of the world know, can be a long way away and easily forgotten. So we're most appreciative. Dr. Susman is Director of Policy, Advocacy and Special Initiatives for the Global Development Program at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In that capacity, he oversees the Foundation's Global Development Policy and Communications work and relationships with governments, NGOs, and other key partners. From between 2005-2007, Mark was the Senior Advisor for Policy and Strategic Communications in the Office of the Secretary-General at the United Nations. In his presentation today, he's going to examine three critical gaps in the present MDG research. Dr. Sussman. Thank you very much, and as you can tell from that introduction, I've been exposed as having uh, come from the United Nations before going to the Gates Foundation, so I was sort of present at the creation of the MDGs and therefore beholden and embedded uh, to them. But what was interesting when I arrived at the foundation uh, just under four years ago was that while obviously they were widely understood, uh, there wasn't really a huge movement to align our work necessarily uh, with the MDGs except so much as it almost accidentally aligned. And one of the things that really changed that, and I'm overstating slightly for effect, but not by too much, uh, was when Bill Gates' daughter came back from school one day, having had a lesson about the MDGs and what they meant and how to think about them. And he was so taken with the fact that a set of goals and concepts like that were being taught in a primary school in the United States as a tool to help people think about development and move around them, that it actually helped transform a little bit of how we worked in the foundation around those issues. And where I want to kick off today is just trying to think through, well, what is it, before we think about going forward and how we accelerate progress, what is it about the MDGs that has been so amazingly powerful uh, that they have triggered uh, work all around the world, conferences like this today, and lots of discussion about what we need to do going forward. I would submit that there's sort of three broad things which we've been touched on in bits and pieces uh, over the last two days, but we're trying to pull together about them that are different. The first that is obvious is they are concrete, measurable targets. 
in a universe where we'd had them in bits and pieces but hadn't really had that for across the field of development before. Uh, the second was their legitimacy, that they sprung out of the Millennium Declaration at the United Nations, endorsed by, at the time, 189 uh, member states, and so universal legitimacy, which development goals don't normally have. And third, embedded within that, something that came up uh, and was talked about in the discussion of why is the Global Fund, for example, so powerful, a notion of reciprocity, that this is a mutual effort between North and South, between developed and developing countries, by which developing countries committed to take every effort they could to meet goals MDGs 1 through 7, and in exchange via MDG 8, the developed world would do what it could through aid, through trade, through technology transfer and other interventions to make that work. And those three just had never really been put together before. And the power of having that come together is really what has helped align in a way that has never happened. Bilaterals, multilaterals, developing country governments, uh, often down to regions and city governments. And that's a very powerful tool that we need to think about how to take that forward. The second point is trying to think through, well, remembering what is it to have these goals. Uh, Bill Gates, again, to use him, and he's uh, currently serving on an MDG advisory board to the Secretary General uh, around these issues. I used to say, remember, they are a report card. Not everybody always gets A's on report cards, but report cards allow you to focus in on where are we doing well, where are we doing badly. If we're not doing so well in areas, why not use that as a mechanism? And remember always that the areas that the MDGs cover are ends, not means. That also tends to get blurred. But the means are, we've had a lot of discussion the last couple of days on issues like what is the proper role of economic growth? What is the proper role of governance? Those are essential means to get to the ends of the development goals. Even if they aren't necessarily part of the targets, they are crucial. We can debate about how much they weighted, but they're certainly necessary. So as we take the thing and try to think through, well, what does it take to accelerate growth? You know, I think we need to keep that framework in mind and think about it as a framework that takes us to the next step. So in that context, the other thing is to think about, well, how are we really doing? And uh, we've had a lot of discussion here. Is, is that glass half full or half empty? There's on track, off track. You'll get the Secretary General's latest report and all the things have lots of flashing red indicators. We've seen where everything is off track uh, globally across most of the goals uh, other than the poverty guns. And while, again, that's very important in the report card context, I think for gatherings like this, what we need to always try and do and take a little bit of a step back, and I hope this is a message that comes through uh, during the September summit, is saying while the MDGs may not be the primary cause, I think it is fair to say that the last 10 years have probably seen the greatest development progress for the greatest number of people in human history. By income measures, uh, by hunger measures, by numbers of children vaccinated, by numbers of children going into primary school, uh, there's just been enormous progress. And China and India, we talk about maybe uh, the primary engines, but that growth is very widespread. Uh, it's many of the poorest countries both in this region, and this region contains many of the highest performers. Um, I talked about countries like uh, Vietnam, uh, which has seen hunger drop from 45% to 20%. Uh, Cambodia has seen access to water rise from 13% to 42%. Now, 42% is still a tiny number, but it's the progress that is important. And when we think about the next steps, we don't think, how do we accelerate that progress? 
And that progress is true in many other parts of the world as well, including Africa, where we tend often to think of, as when you do the regional graphs, Africa is always the one that looks furthest behind on every goal, and indeed it is. But that masks the fact that there's actually a widespread differentiation uh, going on within Africa right now that in many ways is also accelerating, that you have countries like Ghana, Mozambique, Ethiopia, and Rwanda that by some measures have doubled per capita income since 1990. That still means they're desperately poor, but it shows you the kind of progress that is possible. Malawi has seen child mortality drop by 50%. Ethiopia has seen access to water again grow from 13 to 40%. And even at some of the big global goals like child mortality, which again we're off track for the target of uh, dropping by two-thirds, the fall is from 12 million uh, preventable deaths a year in 1990 to this year it's likely to be under 8 million. So the main point to kick off with as we think about progress is let's acknowledge how far we have come, how much progress there really has been, and the fact that there are really good examples of progress underway even in many of the very poorest countries that need to be taken and replicated. So what are the tools to do that and what do we need to be aware of? Well, first, I don't want to be overly complacent. You know, even if there's lots of progress, we do need to acknowledge how far we still need to go. And we need to acknowledge setbacks, like the fact that the recent crisis has knocked the number of hungry people in the world to over one billion for the first time. Not everything goes in the right direction. But we still do have those lessons and tools. And what do we need to do to take them forward? Uh, that's something we think about a lot at the foundation is embedded into uh, a vast range of our work. And I'd like to look at it in two sets of categories. The first is really about you know, evidence and effectiveness. And the second is around scale and sustainability. Now, evidence and effectiveness, um, I come to the first. We've had a lot of discussion over the last couple of days about effectiveness. But the bulk of it has really been around the aid effectiveness agenda, the rhetoric around donor coordination and how far... Uh, behind we are or are not in terms of, of <coughs> achieving the various goals and setbacks. And I don't want to um, dismiss that. It's tremendously important, and you've heard from many of the statistics, including the very depressing one, which was new to me from this morning, that 5% uh, of aid uh, represents 50% of projects in the OECD. And it just shows you there's enormous progress ready to be made there. But the other side of the effectiveness thing is to say which interventions are actually the most valuable. And we've touched on that, Vijay touched on a little bit, the talk around the Poverty Action Lab at MIT is that. But I think that's a tremendously important element. It's something we build into nearly all the work we do. We're supporting other initiatives like the uh, International Initiative, uh, the um, Independent International Initiative on Aid Effectiveness. We call it IIIE, which is trying to find these independent assessments. It's based in Cairo and works with both developing countries and donor countries and others to try and come up with these examples and replicate best practices and spread that out. And that's important, uh, not just obviously in itself, but in the time we're at of huge fiscal crisis, another uh, theme that has come up a lot in the last couple of days in donor countries, the burden of proof for people to take to their taxpayers in donor countries and say, here's why we need to uh, keep spending aid. Here's why we need to come up to the next level. We need to show that you're getting more and more value for money out of the dollars that are being dispersed. And the best way to get that value for money is by having much more rigorous effectiveness that looks at outcomes rather than outputs. As a community, the developing community has really been relatively late to the game on this. It's only in the last decade or so that that shift from money out the door to what are the results happening in terms of 
lives saved and livelihoods built that are really happening. And it's not an easy set of metrics to do, and I don't want to pretend we're nearly there. But we have made a lot of progress. The momentum is there. We're getting better, and we really need to redouble that and keep transferring those lessons and analyses. Uh, the second bit around that is around uh, the scale, scale and sustainability, that even when there are successes, so often they're at project level. They're not really. They're affecting thousands of lives rather than millions of lives, and they're not necessarily sustainable either. And so what are the tools to do that? Well, for some... You aren't necessarily the sustainability is long term. You always need direct support for important interventions like vaccinations or, or things like that. But in other areas, and notably in an area like, uh, say, food security and agricultural production, which is a big area of work that, that we uh, are involved in, um, the tools of sustainability and scale actually lie in the interventions. If you can get it right, you know, we have various interventions. I'm happy to talk more about them in, in the question time around uh, some of them are about providing access to, to cash crops like coffee farmers in, in East Africa. Some of it is uh, to create new markets for staple crops. But the essential vision behind it is if you can get improved crops, training, extension services, and other tools into the hands of poor smallholder farmers, who are the bulk of the world's very poor today still, primarily in South Asia and Africa, but including in a lot of East Asia still, you can have enormous transformative development impact, uh, not just in terms of direct nutrition and income, but in knock-on effects. With more income, children are more likely to be allowed to go to school rather than have to work in the fields, that the income becomes self-sustaining, that you can build up critical mass. And we've seen that happen over and over again. Agricultural productivity has been key to development in nearly every country on the planet, I think with the exception of a few city-states like Singapore and Hong Kong and some of the oil-rich uh, states in the Gulf, there's really almost no example of development that has taken place without a big sustained rise in agricultural productivity. And there are other examples. Uh, you've heard from Vijay on financial services and the tools and techniques of how to help improve that, and, and we work a lot in that area as well, including around areas of, of savings, uh, particularly micro-savings now. And recently um, launched uh, a USAID colleague, I uh, was talking about entrepreneurship and innovation this morning, and just two weeks ago we co-launched an effort in Haiti uh, to try and incentivize almost a challenge fund to incentivize the creation of mobile money networks uh, to almost try and help Haiti move into a, using mobile phone cashless uh, economy, which is, it may or may not work, but it's very exciting. The potential is huge, and there are lots of examples like that. And then the next element that we need to just take those lessons to is say, how then do we disseminate those, not just to the practitioners, but to the public? How do we get them better known? Because it's not really well known. The, the more common problem is what uh, Bob McMullen was talking about this morning when he gets harangued on a radio show about why is all the money being misspent or it's gone on consultants or it's not having impact. We don't want to pretend and gloss over the fact that there is still a lot of misallocation and misspending and improvements can be done, but we can do a much better job collectively pulling out those results and lessons. Uh, we have an effort that we do in connection with the One campaign called Living Proof, now on livingproof.org if you want to look at it, which has just very tangible examples uh, at the moment currently in health and a little bit in agriculture of success at work. Uh, we do some work with the Overseas Development Institute that you might hear about in the next session, really trying to identify a lot of country-level success stories, uh, again, of the types I talked about and what's really worked within them. UNDP, as Helen Clark talked about yesterday, is today launching a whole uh, set of case studies of 30 countries, uh, really what's worked and what hasn't. And we need to get those out into the public domain. And those are really the key tools to acceleration, I think. So um, to 
wind up around it, I think what we need to do is not be complacent about what hasn't worked, but really reflect on what has. How do we really collate and collect those best practice examples from large and small countries and spread them and scale them and make them sustainable while continually improving? I think that's the real challenge. That's the thing that will take us to the next level of the MDGs, and that ultimately, once we get through this phase, uh, is also what will help provide the foundation and framework for the next phase. As uh, Just in closing, I was always struck very soon after the MDGs uh, were created, I remember going to a conference uh, where an activist asked, I said, well, I think this goal is wonderful to, to aim at halving uh, extreme poverty by 2015, but the first question I'm going to ask if I'm a poor person is, which half am I in? And I think as we reach the stage and we acknowledge the progress we have been made, we also need to think through, we need to get to the level where it is about getting to the other half as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next speaker is Mr. Manar Pimble, who's the Regional Director of the UN Millennium Campaign, Asia and the Pacific. He's a social worker by training and has worked on issues of poverty and low levels of socioeconomic political development in India since 1977. In his presentation, he will highlight the context and importance of the upcoming UMDG. Perfect timing for to hear from you, Manar. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me start by thanking Lowy Institute as well as OSED for really bringing this multi-sectoral group together from private sector, from governments, from multilateral agencies, bilateral agencies, civil society. The only missing piece I find is there's not a very strong presence of media because I think it's important to bring all of these actors together for the collective efforts towards the last leg or the last lap of achieving MDGs. Uh, I'm fortunate because I'm the last speaker, so some of the points that I wanted to cover, Mark has already covered them very, very eloquently. But let me start by saying that the kind of tenacity that the Millennium Development Goals have shown in the last 10 years, uh, I think, needs to be noted. When 9-11 happened, there was almost, in the UN, there was almost thinking now with this 9-11 and the whole war on terror, the whole agenda, the global agenda, whether MDGs will get completely lost in that process or not. That was a kind of a, kind of a thinking which, which was there. And MDGs survived 9-11. That, I think is important to note that. When the whole climate change debate happened, I know within Millennium Campaign also there was a discussion that the whole poverty agenda, the whole agenda about the Millennium Development Goals get com will get completely sidetracked because there's so much of uh, discussion and so much of buzz around the climate change. Uh, but I think the fact that this kind of a conference, well-attended conference is being organized in 2010 also shows that there is a level of tenacity that, uh, that MDGs, MDGs have. Even after global financial crisis, of course, we are facing the, some of the effects of it in some of the countries. But still, the Millennium Development Goal remain a core agenda. And as Mark very well put it, Millennium Development Goals for the first time have had the highest political commitment, 189 world leaders signing up to Millennium Declaration. So that's the highest political commitment that one has seen around the MDGs. I think that is a very critical starting point. It's the highest political commitment. Many times when I speak to my friends in the human rights circle, they say MDGs are non-enforceable. Uh, while the human rights uh, instruments, when people sign up, they are enforceable. So I keep saying, but this is when you have the commitment by the political leaders around which you can hold them accountable. So that's a very significant kind of 
a uh, process that has happened around MDGs and gathering around all the bilateral institutions, multilateral institutions, many countries, I know Professor Soleta is here or not, in Philippines, you have now many local governments doing their planning in the MDG framework, even the local authorities. So you have the whole integration of the MDG agenda in the national plans, in the uh, states or the provincial plans, as well as the local plans. So that's the kind of impact that the Millennium Development Goals have had. I always say that looking at Millennium Development Goals without thinking of Millennium Declaration is a wrong way to go, because for me, Millennium Declaration is a philosophical, ethical, and moral basis for Millennium Development Goals. So if you really want to understand the Millennium Development Goals in their fullest and really appreciate them in their, in their full vitality, then you have to really go get back to the Millennium Development, uh, Millennium Declaration, because that's, that's the basis. And that is why we, one has to keep reminding oneself that don't only look at those eight goals, now uh, 21 in, uh, targets and 60 indicators, but look at the Millennium Declaration, because that for the first time, in a way, combines the three major discourses in the world. The discourse around human rights, discourse around human security, and discourse around human development. These three discourses are woven together in the form for formation of the Millennium Declaration. And from that perspective, in a way, the vision document for the next millennia for the human civilization is the Millennium Declaration. And from that perspective, I think it is important to keep visiting and revisiting uh, the Millennium Declaration to get our inspiration, to get uh, why we do what we do, is, is, because that's, that's always important. Not only what concrete results we achieve, but the, the very reason, the earth of what we do is in the Millennium Declaration. And from that perspective, I think that becomes, that becomes very important. I think the reasons what Millennium Development Goals have been able to achieve have been discussed, and Mark has also put very strongly, the kind of advances, though not adequate, but still huge amount of movements in some of the poorest countries of the world. Those countries which have had tremendous amount of civil strife, tremendous amount of political instabilities. The region I come from, South Asia, look at Bangladesh, look at Nepal. Last 10 years, huge amount of uh, instability in the countries. But in spite of that, the number of goals on which there has been a tremendous progress in both these countries is heartening. So I think, and the number of examples that Mark gave, which I don't want to repeat, but there are very, very important examples that have come. Those countries where the political leadership has been on the top of MDGs have been able to bring about a huge amount of change in terms of aligning themselves. I have had instances where some of the chief ministers in a country like India talking to us in a private, saying that, you know, I want MDGs to be completely out of corruption area, and I'm trying to tell my ministers, which, does, which basically means you may do corruption in other areas, but not, not on the areas of MDGs, not on the health and education. You know, that kind of a thing in private conversation. People have, people have shared some, some of this kind of thing because they think it is important, because for a politician, it is important to deliver if he or she wants to get re-elected. So I think from that perspective, the tenacity of MDGs, the relevance of MDGs, and the fact that they are here to stay at least for next five years, and beyond next five years, what is now established very clearly is what gets measured gets counted. So from that perspective, whatever comes up after 2015, there is a kind of a movement that there will be some kind of a very concrete outcome-driven goals that the international community will set up and will be interested in following up. And that is the kind of a uh, thing that, that, that has got established. 
Now, looking towards this 2010, it's a big opportunity because it's a 10-year review. What, what do we need to focus for the 2010? I think that's a, that's a kind of agenda. And I have been talking about three things that are very critical from the perspective. And many, many of them are on the same lines that many of the others who, who have spoken. I'm just trying to combine them together. One critical part is to focus on both what you call goal eight countries like Australia and goal one to seven countries like the developing countries coming up very clearly with breakthrough plans for accelerated achievement of Millennium Development Goals in the remain, remaining five years. That is very critical. So wherever you are, whichever country you are, try and work with your government, push your governments to come up with how do we accelerate achievement of MDGs in the country that you come from. So coming up with the breakthrough plans is, I think, one of the critical agendas that we from the Millennium Campaign are pushing all, all along. Second outcome that we are looking at and that we are pushing for is again being talked about quite a bit in this conference is the issue of we need to bring in the debate of inequality as part of the Millennium Development Goals. So we don't need to create a new goal, but even the existing indicators need to be tempered with the issue of inequality very clearly ingrained as part of those indicators because that's very important. Otherwise, there is a kind of a, when you look at only aggregate figures, they hide the issues of gender and gender inequality. They hide issues of uh, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, and the impact, of, uh, the impact on those communities. They also hide the whole issue of uh, disabled people, issues of marginal geographic regions. So I always keep saying three Gs, the gender, the uh, marginal geographic regions, and the social groups, which are not in the forefront. Because many times aggregates can hide the nuanced situations of these countries, uh, of these groups. What is important? is to highlight that to make them visible. Because if MDGs are not achieved for these groups, then just the national aggregate achievement, those groups, those middle classes or lower middle classes would have achieved Millennium Development Goals even without Millennium Development Goals. So what is the new thing about Millennium Development Goals? The first call on Millennium Development Goals is of those groups which are most vulnerable and which are most excluded. So that is why bringing the whole issue of inequality on the agenda is very critical in terms of the MDG summit. The third factor, which has been one of the criticism on the MDGs, is the issue of setting up accountability frameworks. How do we ensure workable, robust, transparent, accountable accountability mechanisms and framework as part of the outcome document of the summit? And at two levels. One is accountability between the rich and the poor countries. So how do we ensure the accountability related to goal eight? But at the same time, how do we ensure accountability in the poor countries between the states and the citizens? So that's what brings us to the whole issue of how do we monitor effectiveness of aid or effectiveness of development agenda in the respective countries. And from that perspective, for us, from the Millennium Campaign's perspective, we look at working simultaneously with six groups of people. One is, of course, civil society organizations in which a large group of people is faith-based organizations. How do we bring churches? How do we bring ulema councils? How do we bring uh, Hindu spiritual leaders on the agenda and how they become the promoters? We have had a situation, uh, some of the Indian friends would know, one of the religious leaders called Baba Ramdev used to speak or every morning. Uh, he has about uh, 10 million people following him every morning and speaking on MDGs every morning uh, when he was uh, excited about Millennium Development Goals. So we have had that kind of situation and many people started learning about this. So bringing this kind of 
of groups on board is critical. Second is getting our legislators, our members of parliament, our uh, council members, how do we engage them in a big way? How do they become aware? We have been engaged in a process of forming groups of parliamentarians who can actually hold governments to account on the floor of the parliament, on the floor of the Congress, on achievement of MDGs. Bringing local governments, somebody mentioned yesterday local governments, the significance of local governments. Almost 60% of delivery on MDGs is handled in many countries by local governments. If you keep the local governments out, if you don't bring their associations in, if you don't excite them so that they understand that what they are doing in their local context is going to contribute towards the country achieving MDGs, that excites them. And I've seen that personally in many countries where local government associations come on board. So that's a third constituency that we need to be mobilizing and we need, to, we need to bring together. Fourth constituency, media. It is very important. How do we make media more proactive? Where they bring out the stories of what is happening, why some of the changes, some of the positive changes that are happening, rather than a reactive media, how do we build a proactive media towards development, a media which is supporting the development initiatives. And we have been doing some of these kinds of works in Indonesia. Erna is here. She negotiated this uh, thing with a uh, television station called Metro TV. And every week they have this session called Inside MDGs. And every week it's on the prime time in the morning. Uh, which is where they're discussing about Millennium Development Goals and what Indonesia is doing about it. So those kinds of long-term uh, proactive media interventions become very, very critical. How do you bring the private sector? Yesterday, I, I was asked in Lowy Institute, day before yesterday, question. I said, you know, point is, how do we look at private sector in terms of they aligning their all the business processes? So it's not a charity. It's not a philanthropy going beyond it aligning business processes which are consistent with achievement of MDGs in the country that they operate. How do we push them in that direction? And again, we have examples in some of the countries because of the time I'm not giving you those examples. And how do we basically also mobilize young people? Because ultimately I keep saying uh, many times that many of us, here again I don't see a much participation of youth because that's critical constituency. How do we mobilize young people? Because Millennium Development Goals are creating a sustainable, secure future for youth. So how do we bring them on board? How do we engage them as campaigners on one hand and as monitors of what is happening on MDGs on the other hand? So youth as a MDG monitors, youth as MDG campaigners. I think that those kinds of two processes is, is, is becomes uh, critical. Just to conclude, because I have heard the bell, what Australia can do? In these three areas that I, that I have outlined, I think one of the very positive things that Australia has done, in spite of the financial crisis and in spite of some of the discussion about the aid effectiveness going on in this country, is to keep the commitment on goal eight, especially on the ODA and the levels of ODA, which is, I think, very important to keep reaffirming as a model for other rich countries that we are keeping up to that commitment. We hope that the others will follow. So I think that is one very important role that Australia can play. Second, and I have had these discussions with some of the people in OSED also, that it is important that Australia takes a kind of a championship on the agenda of inequalities in part of the negotiations in the outcome documents. So basically, we're trying to, how do we bring the issue of inequalities as part of the outcome document so that next five years get focused and get inequality agenda integrated as part of the next five years plans in the MDGs as part of the outcome document. And the third, leadership 
on pushing for the accountability framework. So those are three kind of concrete things that we can actually bring out from this seminar as a challenge or as a, as a suggestion, as a recommendation to the Australian government that they can play this role in terms of the ongoing negotiations that are happening now in New York. Lowy Institute has done one very good, interesting step. I think they would build this whole agenda of research on MDGs as part of the program for the next five years in terms of what has worked, why it has worked, and how it can be scaled up. Because it is important to bring positive examples to always say why things have worked and how they can be scaled up. So not, as Mark was saying, not a project things, but something which we can take away and take in other countries and replicate. That is critical. That requires a good amount of quality research work to convince, you know, the groups within the country. And the last group, we work here closely with the Make Poverty History in Australia. I don't see my friends from Oak Tree Foundation, the only youth organization that I was, that I was hoping to be here. But we work with them uh, very closely to build a constituency, uh, engage constituency in Australia in support of ODA in support of GOLET commitments by Australia, in support of MDGs. And just to conclude, ODA is not only the cash transfer. Don't look at ODA only as part of the cash transfer. It is part of rebuilding the global solidarity, universalization of compassion. So that is the framework in which if we see ODA, in addition to all the technical issues of effectiveness that one is talking about, I think that will give us a much stronger sense and stronger hope towards moving towards achieving MDGs. To conclude, we are the first generation that has all technological, human, financial resources to achieve MDGs. The choice that we have today is not to miss that opportunity. Thank you very much. I want to first of all thank you very much, each of our speakers. There is a very strong concurrence in the ideas that you put forward. So could you first of all just thank the speakers in the very traditional way for their presentations and then start thinking about your questions. So the accelerating, accelerating progress and yet uh, Vijay Mahajan uh, may have perturbed some of the listeners by uh, very concisely and very clearly uh, explaining um, the soul-searching which is going on within the microfinance movement uh, at the moment uh, and and may have caused some people to wonder about that. I know, Vijay, that you, during the 1990s, set out to create a fully professional, regulated financial services institution in a landscape marked, on the one hand, by social welfare NGOs fumbling their way towards an understanding of how to lend money, on the other, and on the other hand, um, uh, a hidebound, highly regulated, highly politicised banking system which was incapable of assisting the poor. And you set out to do that, and yet now, after 12, 15 years, you've really... The wheels turned quite a long way, hasn't it? Because you're still running a professional, sustainable financial institution, but now you're also a multifaceted development organisation. You didn't set out to do that. In fact, you set out to break away from that model, I think. Maybe I'm imputing too much to you. Uh, in terms of the soul-searching, uh, something you didn't mention, and you didn't actually use the word financial inclusion, that may well have been uh, deliberate, but another way uh, of looking more optimistically at what you've been doing is to say that um, you've been aiding 
financial sector development, you and many people like you have been aiding financial sector development, deepening the financial sector from the bottom rather than at the top, deepening the financial sector through financial inclusion. And it is that process of financial sector development which may in the long run be seen to have been the most important contribution of the microfinance revolution. Would you care to comment? Well, it's, it's a great comment. Indeed, it's a grand summary of 15 years of my work. Thank you. Uh, but though it does appear that one has gone down in circles, but I, at least I like to think that it's a helix at least, and that one is going up, there's some evolution. And, and the, the return from the argument of minimalist credit to more broad-based integrated development and indeed full financial sector development is partly because of the understanding of uh, the narrowly focused single intervention of the type that microcredit turned out to be, but then accepting its limitations honestly and then staying with what would then enhance it. And therefore, I think when, particularly when one relates it to things like the achievement of the MDGs, the key point that I was making was that <clears throat> somehow there's not enough of an intellectual uh, uh, sort of concern for the fact that the microeconomies in most developing countries, the microeconomies of households, of farms and firms in the informal sector, are very significantly uh, not integrated with the macroeconomies. I was in Papua New Guinea just uh, 10 days ago, and because of the LNG project, that country is likely to have uh, double or triple its, its GDP in the next few years, hopefully. But I see virtually nothing in place which is going to then get even 10% of that flow to the microeconomy of the households, the, 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 the rural, the informal, and so on. And I think the key point that I'm making is that the MDGs also, the whole discourse of MDGs is making that mistake because progress about MDGs is going to happen at the household level first and not at some aggregated nation state or even aggregated province or aggregated district level. And enabling households is the key that we have not yet, uh, you know, uh, turned. And without that, acceleration is not going to happen. In studying on sustainable development, uh, we are taught to change or into end. And all through these three days, uh, it, it confirmed again that there is no either or, but it is an end. Yeah? So it's uh, government and civil society, yeah? not civil society only or government only, and government and civil society and private sector, growth and social justice, formal ODA and private and individual funding, foreign aid and international, uh, internal budget, MDGs and climate change. So uh, we should not, uh, and, and I want to repeat again that the way forward is really implementing holistic approach, yeah, a multi-stakeholder uh, uh, approach as well as building and building synergy. And that is what we have continuously forgotten in this last 10 years. We, we return to to the small sector that we're in. And I, I think that uh, for future, to accelerate that, yeah, building this uh, end 
instead of either or culture is what is needed. Thank you. Um, good afternoon. I'm Eddie from the Philippines. I I just like to point out two things. The first one is uh, one thing that we should do really is to localize the work on MDGs. That means uh, working with the subnational levels. And in the Philippines, for example, the mayors, the governors, the local government, down to the villages are very important because in our uh, decentralized mode, it's the local government that are charged with uh, education, with health, with environmental sanitation. And I'm part of a foundation, we call it Kalimpok, that tries to incentivize doing good. It's basically what say, we're saying that, okay, all of you, the 1,500 mayors, you compete and you apply for best practices in healthcare, in education, in sanitation, in livelihood promotion, and we recognize you, we will recognize you, and we'll uh, award outstanding programs every year and give you some recognition and some financial benefits. It's basically a performance-based mechanism. And with these best practices, the second point actually that I'm going to say is about uh, using the best practices so that we replicate and we, uh, we not only replicate at the national level, but also on the global stage. And that means really connecting all these best practices across the globe. And we're part of a liaison group that uh, work this, at the same time in Peru, in Chile, South Africa, even Berlin, uh, uh, China, and in uh, at the Harvard. And maybe my question is for the Bill Gates, uh, Dr. Uh, how could Bill Gates uh, uh, encourage more replication and inter-exchange uh, of these ideas so that different best uh, practices are shared at the same time, replicated not only at the national level, but maybe on the international stage? Thank you. Uh, it's a great point, and I, I certainly wasn't intending to imply when I talked about scaling best practices that we're looking only at national best practices, even if I was citing national examples of progress, because uh, as several people have pointed out and Vijay just echoed, you know, actual progress is about people. Um, even if I use national things, that's really what these aimed at. It's people, it's households. That's how you actually track uh, whether we're making an impact or not on people's lives. And it's those lessons that need to be taken out so that the more that the MDGs are taken down to local, city level, regional levels and, and made the, the better. In terms of how you actually track and spread those best practices, that's exactly what uh, efforts like the International Initiative on Impact Effectiveness I talked about is trying to do. And I don't want to oversell our ability to do that yet uh, because it is the flip side of the coin, like the aid effectiveness, aid coordination bit. We're all very good at the rhetoric now. Of course, we must share knowledge of best practices and spread them around just as we must coordinate and believe in national ownership. And execution is very difficult because the incentive structures and so on don't really allow uh, it to happen very well. But I think we are getting better. There are these platforms. The one I cited is, is one effort to do that. I think uh, many of the multilateral uh, institutions like UNDP and the World Bank and so on are trying to uh, do this more effectively as well. And we just have to keep 
trying by doing. It's, it's not a silver bullet issue, but unless we get better at it and really do take those transfers, and ultimately it's about connecting the people who've done it successfully with other people who want to do it successfully, uh, we won't uh, get real traction on the issue. Thank you. Derek Bryan from the Pacific Institute of Public Policy. And uh, a lot of what I was going to raise has actually just been covered in the last uh, conversation. But I just wanted to make the – well, I suppose I'll just make the point now about uh, the, the relevance of information flows um, being critical to the, the whole um, issue of progress, um, whether it's about getting success stories out or, or sharing experiences or, or whether it's about um, creating a more inclusive uh, an informed policy dialogue and getting this information into the live policy debate. And I suppose I think everyone would agree that it's more than just a PR exercise, it's about understanding uh, the local social and political framework or landscape and actually framing the message and framing the information flows uh, into that context. Um, but, but I also recognise that, uh, I mean, as an organisation that set up precisely to try and, and facilitate that in the Pacific, um, that generally within an industry, um, an industry called development, it, it's something that there's a lot of learning to, to be done on that particular part as well, on how we actually communicate and get those messages across and actually um, frame them for the, for the, uh, the, the relevant context uh, to build a broader inclusive conversation. Um, my question was more related to the specifics of, of what has just been covered, but maybe if there's any comments on that. I think other than uh, saying I absolutely agree and, and reinforce it and that uh, I think this is a collective effort. Uh, people in this room are, are attending this conference because these are issues they care about and think about and I, I think there aren't no sort of absolute blueprints on how we do it. A lot of this is about experimentation and seeing what's really worked. We're commissioning quite a lot of research at the moment uh, in different parts of the world that effectively tries to go to policymakers and say in what form would you find information most useful? Uh, you know, most don't have time to read long academic papers or discourses. You know, if we condense things into two or three pages that do these things, or is it in-person dialogues, or is it verbal? You know, there are different things, and the answers may be fundamentally different in Papua New Guinea than Ghana than in Brazil, and we need to accept that and and just keep doing that. So that that is work we have underway, and and many of our partners do, and and everyone in the room probably has something to contribute to that. If I may just take a different cut at, uh, you know, again, information sharing and all this, we, we talk in terms of institutions in this whole endeavor. But at the household level, we see a, a paradox operating. I mean, as Professor Sennett mentioned, on the one hand, India has now over 550 million users of mobile phones. And on the other hand, a large percentage of the population still engages in open defecation and doesn't have sanitary toilets. So what is it that certain products and practices almost, you know, they spread like epidemics and others don't? And it's not about availability or lack of information. There's something more. There's some behavioral conundrum that we have not yet adequately addressed. And once again, I want to highlight that 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 point of analysis has to be the household and the community. It cannot be the nation state, the province or the district. Garth Luke, World Vision. Um, uh, given that we seem to not have enough resources going to prevent hunger, to achieve basic education, to ensure 
children survive and mothers survive and that there's adequate water and sanitation for people. I can't think of any way to accelerate progress more rapidly and also that we have severe problems with corruption. I can't think of any uh, step that we could take that wouldn't, would increase, improve things more rapidly than ensuring that all women, that, that all organisations at the management and at the evaluation level of programs had at least 50% representation of women. And uh, I believe this is something we could uh, commit to at the UN summit this year and would result in very rapid change and I just improvement for the better. And I, I, uh, I, I'm thinking of group, uh, I'm thinking of uh, NGOs, um, international NGOs, uh, the UN, uh, the aid agencies, the donor, donor aid agencies, the World Bank, etc. I just wondered what your opinion about that step might might be. Now, I wanted to take over first and then I'll come to the other question. Uh, in 2008, when there was a high-level event on the MDGs, we tried to uh, bring out the case studies and which uh, about basically what are the kinds of things, factors which go into the successes. And uh, at least the two, two governments, Indonesian government and the Philippines government, found those case studies very useful and they actually reprinted those copies uh, for circulation in the, in the MDG summit. So I think the format in which you bring such things is very critical in terms of whom are you targeting it. And for 2010 also, we are trying to bring out the case studies from different countries uh, to actually highlight and just two-page uh, documentation of the case study while well, answering these three questions what what was done why it was successful and how it can be scaled up so that's the kind of a framework in which i think some of this documentation can be made easily available and the information flows can be uh, quite popular uh, so that is one of the tools that one can one can use you know very simple case studies in a non jargon plain simple english kind of a fashion that becomes very critical uh, in terms of this uh, thing, it is true that, uh, you know, there are many countries now one is saying that uh, oh, the uh, engagement of women makes a huge amount of, uh, huge amount of difference uh, at various levels of the development agenda. So from that perspective, I would only agree with your point that, uh, you know, it's how do we engage women at various stages in all forms of decision making, whether it is government or non-government or uh, even uh, UN for that matter. Uh, so from that perspective, I can only agree with that point, basically. I'd certainly like to intervene here and say that having gone to the UN... Uh Midterm convention in 1980, one of the more remarkable observations to make on, the, on a conference about women was that most of the delegations were led by men who felt unable to move aside and let women who were accompanying them speak. And uh, not a lot has changed. And the numbers, if you go to measure, that we're all talking about metrics here today, let's just measure where the women are in the UN and me measure where they are elsewhere. Not, not, no point in wasting much rhetoric about it. They're just not given the spaces. And we know it's culture. Then we thought it was education. We think about a lot of things. But fact is, some people have to move aside in order for other people to have some leadership options. So that's my quite totally strong view as a feminist of uh, working in that area for 45 years. Uh, whatever we thought um, would remove the bar, we all said if we got educated, it'd be fabulous. And now 55% of us in this country are graduates and uh, the bar just keeps going up. So there'll have to be a time. And a lot of the framework around the framing around the Millennium Development Goals is about the leadership of women. 
and it will be one of the most subtle and one of the most revolutionary changes when it's achieved, which in, it won't inevitably be. People will have to work very hard to be able to achieve it. Perfectly willing to what you've, hear what you've got to say. Yeah, I was just making one contrarian point about the, the mechanical involvement of women. Once again, the microfinance field is one where women are, in terms of being users of it, are numerous. In fact, most programs are characterized by the fact that they only work with women. But on the whole, something like 80 or 85 percent of beneficiaries are women. And there's now enough literature to show that while it has led to empowerment of women at the household and community level, it has also led to enhancement of their burdens because they continue to be homemakers, but in addition, they have to now engage in some micro-enterprise. And then the burden of indebtedness and repayment uh, in case the money, the loan is taken by the, in their name, but it's used away by, by their husband and so on. So it's not just the mechanical, uh, you know, uh, directing of benefits towards women that's going to work. It's got to be something deeper. I think it's called culture. Um, thank you. Uh, my question is to the panel, but perhaps, Minar, you could start since you spoke about the Millennium Summit, upcoming MDG Summit in New York, and you also spoke about uh, how the effective outcomes, strong, robust outcome statement with accountability frameworks and highlighting inequality could contribute to accelerating the progress towards the MDGs. But in terms of uh, setting one's expectations, uh, over the last couple of decades, we've observed, we've observed gradual shift of clout and authority from this formal institutions of global governance, if you will, such as the UN and IFIs, to more informal arrangements between the member states, G8 morphing to G20, and then BRIC has been mentioned today, BASIC, uh, from the climate change domain, and so on and so forth. So uh, how do you think, uh, uh, how, su how sufficiently do you think the, these informal arrangements are being engaged, and what could be done to get them more engaged into this MDG discourse? I think the key from my experience is the citizens mobilization in the respective countries. If you actually look at the present form of the outcome document, it's not a very hopeful situation with the kind of tensions that are there between different groups, whether the European group or the group of 77 plus China. So you can see the actually the dynamic of how it is reflecting in the outcome document. So the, the key things that from we are doing from the Millennium Campaign is to actually work with the citizens groups in respective countries so that they can try and actually push for some of these agendas because ultimately it has to come from the governments if it has to get reflected in the outcome document. So I think the three three prong approach one is the citizens mobilization uh, on one hand second is really bringing out what has worked what have, uh, and why it has worked and really making those positive uh, stories coming up in media, coming up in as, as kind of enthusiasm part. And the third element is really focusing on the what are the key policy practice changes that are required that need to be uh, undertaken. But that has to happen at the national government level, at the national level, because ultimately the outcome document is negotiated by the member states and not by you and me, basically. This has been a recording of the Lowy Institute. For more information and other recordings, please visit the Lowy Institute website at www.loweyinstitute.org.